Our Old Testament reading today is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It can be found on page 745 in the Bibles we provide. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading, or New Testament reading, excuse me, uh, is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10, and can be found on page 1003 in the Bibles we provide. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of the men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another, another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon text for this morning is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and can be found on page 822 in the Bibles we provide. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. They lifted up their eyes. They saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come and he'll restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the gospel of Christ. 
Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that you um, are the word and how important that is for us. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit that it will come here and be in this place to make your words not only understandable but doable for us. That would empower us not just to be listeners of the word but doers of the word. So open up our ears and our hearts and our minds, Father, because you alone have the words of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we finished our eight weeks on Joshua and Judges, and now that we are in Advent, we're working through a four-week Advent study. As we've already talked about, this is a season of waiting. And for most Americans, waiting is not something high on their priority list. We are a people of doing and a people of efficiency. Let me give you some examples. How many people have ever seen a billboard on the highway that tells you what the wait time is of an ER? You're not going to see that in any other countries. I've been to other countries. No one's telling us these things. How many of you have the opportunity to go ahead and put your your name in for a restaurant because you don't want to wait longer than you have to? Call ahead seating, also one of those things that's very American in the way that we do stuff. We have these... this one story that's been dominating the Knoxville news, which is how long people are having to wait to get their real ID, and that we need to come up with all these scenarios and hire more people so we can have folks to get their IDs in time. That doesn't happen around the world. That is a very American thing. And I gotta be honest with you, I am terrible at waiting. I wish it was something that I had like the gift of. I wish I was good at it. I wish that I could sit and enjoy what God was doing in those moments. But waiting brings up the ugliest parts of my heart. As you, I mean, if you know me at all, you know this. And if you just, is this all you get of me? I am a constant motion kind of person. Standing still, I, if I stood behind that podium, I would probably knock it down after a little while because I just can't do that. So the idea of waiting is so hard for me. And I wanted to put that to the test. So last week, it's been a big year for our family, okay? My daughter turned 13, my son turned 16, my wife turned 40, and it was our 20th anniversary all in the same year. So we decided to do a big trip. So we went to an amusement park and we went on a cruise. Two places where you're waiting all the time. (laughs) I mean, all the time. So it's you're waiting on a ride or waiting on a water slide or waiting for the food of the buffet. Now, what I've realized is those didn't bother me as much. Like, you know, if I'm waiting to go on like a really cool ride, I could actually do that with a little bit of joy. When I was waiting on the food, I knew it'd probably be okay, so that's good enough for me, so I could do that. But the part that killed me the most was the traffic. If you've not driven to Orlando recently, don't ever, ever do it again. Again, something that's an American thing, you have a GPS that tells you how long it's gonna take you to get somewhere, terrible idea. Because we're an hour and a half out and the GPS told me three different times, we've added 45 minutes to your trip. We've added an hour to your trip. We added 32 minutes to your trip and I am dying inside. And it just brings up, I mean, every person that's driving can't drive anymore. They were great drivers before, but now it's traffic. They can't drive. This waiting But I realized the reason it didn't bother me to wait at at like the amusement parks, but it bothered me to wait in traffic is because traffic feels like purposeless waiting. I'm waiting with no something to hold on to or something to hope for. If I'm waiting for a ride or waiting for a meal, there's something that waits on the other side that is worth it. And if we look at Advent as senseless or useless waiting, we're missing the boat of this season completely. 
If we think there's nothing really worth it on the other side, but it's just a season we have to do, something God has made us do, we're gonna miss out on the glory and the joy of what it is. Because what this season is supposed to be is eager expectation. It's why we get the word adventure from Advent. This coming should be something we are excited for what's ahead as we long for it. And as we think about Advent, the only way we can truly do that is if we're not just looking towards the first coming of Jesus when he came, little eight pound, six ounce, you know, baby, but the second coming. We are in a season of life where our Advent actually hasn't really happened yet, so we're longing for what is to come. And because of that, can I just be honest? Can we be honest for a moment? Can we, can we have that kind of relationship now, right? We can just be honest with each other. It's not gonna live up. This season, will, it's not gonna live up to what you hope it will because nothing in this world ever does. No vacation, no job, no raise, no title, no success, no relationship, no meal, no event, no anything in this world lives up to what we really want it to be, does it? It always leaves us wanting more. It always leaves us trying to hope and grab for the next thing that we hope is gonna fulfill our hearts. And we as Christians spend way too much time in guilt and in shame because we'll go through the season and go, I didn't really feel it, so I must have done something wrong. I must have had the wrong Advent devotional this year. That, that has to be what it was. Or I wasn't really listening to the Lord the way I should. And we live in this perpetual guilt and shame because we think because we long for more than this world has to offer, something's wrong with us. Can I encourage you with the fact that's exactly how you're supposed to be? You're like, Andrew, what a huge bummer to the beginning of Advent. You're like really killing me here, man. I mean, I came in with my Christmas stuff and I was really excited and you're doing this to me. Why? Because Advent should be a season of longing. We should long for more from this world and we should long for more than this world. Advent should be about us looking towards what will actually satisfy us and nothing in this world can satisfy us because guess what? You and I weren't made for this world. We were made for another world. So the things of this world, no matter how hard you try to grasp and hold on to and hope for, they will never satisfy you. Even if you had the most perfect 20, let me just say, let you have the perfect advent, okay? 25 perfect days. You just did it all right. Everything worked out the way you hoped. You know what you'll do at the end of those 25 days? You won't go, that was awesome. It's great. I'm, I'm good. I'm fulfilled. I'm done. You'll go, man, I hope I get 25 more days like that. Five more days like that. One more day like that. Because we long to hold on to that and hope for that. But as we look through this season, what I want to remind you and I is that our hope needs to be in another world. Our hope needs to be in something greater than this, greater than us. And as we look even at the blessing and gifts of these candles and we look at hope and joy and love and peace that only Jesus can provide us. And as we look at him, we look at his word, we look at his titles to give us glimpses of that. It should always be with an eye looking forward. That what we're awaiting, even today, even this moment, is to be the people that go, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because when he comes back, he makes all things new, including us. And he takes us to be with him. That should be our heart and our desire and our goal.
And as we look at these different titles, and it's often gonna be two like we had this morning, son of God, son of man. It's gonna be important for us to look not only towards the first advent, the first coming, but the second one as well and how it means and is important for us. Now, it is Advent season, so I see there's a lot of kids in here, so I think they remembered from last year. Kids, because it's Advent, we're gonna have a little game we play to kind of help you guys pay attention and listen to all the words that come out of my mouth. It's called bribery in most like languages and countries. It's okay with me, fine. Starting in a minute, you need to start counting every time I say the word son, And then when you're done, you come down here and I've got candy. I've got candy sitting underneath. Yes, this is bribery. I've got candy sitting underneath my chair. If you come up and tell me how many times I said son, you get candy, okay? Starting now. So we have this picture, Jesus as the son of God and Jesus as the son of man combined together here in the transfiguration. And what we have to understand is the context of it. Jesus is with his disciples and he goes and asks them, He asked his disciples, who does the world say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, you are the Christ. You are the promised one, the one who was to come. And Jesus like, you're right. Now let me flesh that out for you because what he says next is now I'm gonna suffer and die. And in one of the other gospel accounts, Peter's very confused by this whole thing and says, no, Jesus, you're not gonna die. And Jesus has to go from, you are Peter on the rock that I'm gonna build my church to get behind me, Satan. Quick moment for him. But he says to him, no, I'm gonna suffer and die. Not only that, if you wanna follow me, you're gonna have to take up your cross and die and follow me as well. So the disciples find themselves very confused as we see them here. And as we look at this, we're gonna see the two categories of who Jesus, he's the son of God, he's the son of man. And what that looks like and what that fleshes out. Now, this is a nice and neat outline, but we're gonna kind of zigzag all over the place. I'm just sorry, that's how the story is. But as the son of God, we're gonna see his glory. But as a son of man, we're gonna see his intentionality. The son of God, we're gonna see his place in history. As a son of man, we're gonna see his place with us. As a son of God, we're gonna see our call, and as a son of man, we're gonna see his call. So let's start on the right-hand side, son of man, and we're gonna talk about his intentionality. How does this whole chapter begin? It says Jesus goes up on the mountainside and he brings Peter, James, and John with him. If you notice, so much of Jesus's ministry was come and see. Not a teacher far off who would kind of teach and then disappear off into the back and never seen from again. Jesus was in the midst of his people all the time, in the midst of his disciples, constantly who he was. Even after when he, after he's raised again from the dead and he goes to Thomas, he says, come see, touch. He was a teacher. He was someone who was close to his people. So even this, he brings them along to come and see and to experience this amazing thing. He knew that they were gonna need this for their faith and confidence in him as the days got longer. As he got closer to the cross, they would need this reminder. And this isn't the only time this happened. If you'll remember in scripture, Peter, James, and John got to go with Jesus when he raised a little girl from the dead. And then on further in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John will also be with Jesus as he is struggling in anguish and prayer, sweating drops of blood, the Bible tells us. These little glimpses where he's getting to see behind the curtain of what's really happening and going on. And that's who Jesus is. He's one of great intentionality. And for you and I who didn't get to live in Jesus' time, he still leaves behind eyewitness accounts to who he is and what he's done through his word. And he says, come and see, 
Come and listen, come and read, come and know who I am. See my love, see my power, see my strength, see my death, see my sacrifice, and look at it. Look and see what I've done. Go put yourself in these stories to be reminded of the power and the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is so intentional with us. For each and every one of us, if you are in Christ, there's an individual story of how he's gotten your attention, how he's spoken to you in different ways, how he's shown himself faithful in something going on in your life. He is so intentional with us. And as the son of man, that's how he can be because he knows our language. He knows this earth. He knows the people. But then as the son of God, we're gonna see his glory. The first miracle happens as they go up to the top of the mountain. And as you know from scripture, especially the Old Testament, mountains are where people are often encountering God. And it says that Jesus was transformed. He's not not reflecting glory, he's radiating it. He becomes as bright and shining, brighter than the sun. So for those of you that have ever been like foolish enough like I have when I was a little kid to look up at the sun and to see how long you could see it, brighter than that. As bright as you can imagine, his clothes, his body, his face shining. What a miracle, what a surprise, what a shock in that moment for these disciples. But it's a small picture of Jesus and what it's gonna be like in heaven. That's what he's giving them, a foretaste of what was to come. You see this, this is what I'll be like. And guess what? This is what you'll be like as well. We will be full of God's glory. And the beauty of that picture is with Jesus being both the son of God and the son of man, he doesn't lose either one of them. He's 100% God and 100% man, which the math majors in here have now told me that's 200%. You are correct. But he doesn't lose one or the other. He can be both. He is both, perfectly human, perfectly God. And we need him to be that way because if he's not both, we're in trouble. If he's only God, that's great that he's perfect, but he can't die. If he's only man, he can't be perfect because he was born into the same sin that you and I were. So unless he is perfect and unless he can die, we are all in trouble. So this picture of this son of man who was promised from the garden with Adam and Eve, that there would be one who would crush the heel of the serpent of the enemy cast all with you, but also the son of God in his perfection. Two things at the same time. And it is hard for us to fathom and gather how can these two things both be true? Well, I'm sure that there are deep theological pictures that I can paint for you, but that's just not who I am. So I wanna paint a picture that made sense to me. When I was nine years old, a new TV show came on after school. It was called Transformers. How many people ever have heard or seen Transformers or bought Transformers for their kids? Okay, good, you see it, you understand it. The whole premise of this show is there's robots that turn into cars and dinosaurs and insects and stuff like that. But they're both at the same time. That's the beautiful thing about Transformers. It was a car and a robot. So as a kid, until you broke it, which took about 5.7 seconds, like you had both. But when it's a car, it was still a robot. You didn't have to add new pieces or parts. And when it was a robot, you didn't have to add pieces and parts to make it a car. It was both at the same time and it didn't take away from each other. 
Jesus as perfectly the son of God and perfectly the son of man, he's both at the same time and it doesn't take away from each other. So we see this picture of his glory of what is to come in heaven, shining bright for the disciples as a reminder of who he is. This is a picture they were gonna get to take with them for the rest of their lives. To remember, to see this glory, to be blinded by it. And if that wasn't enough, we get to see his place in history. Miracle number two, all of a sudden, Jesus bright and shining and Moses and Elijah show up. Now, these are the two greatest people in the history of Israel showing up. So if you're the disciples, it's like, your mind is kind of blown by this whole thing. It'd be like if all of a sudden, you know, like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington stood up here or something, you know, or Michael Jordan and LeBron James or Mozart and Beethoven and Andrew Duncan, like whatever, like whatever those things are. Like the amazing, like the beyond what you could imagine happening. Because you've got Moses who was the law giver, who gave the law, who represented the law and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets standing with Jesus. And why that's so important for you and for me is because nowadays most Christians want to discount the Old Testament completely. Doesn't matter. Now that we have Jesus, we don't need all that old stuff. We don't need that Old Testament. What we see here in this beautiful picture is Jesus is not saying, I'm so much greater than them. Y'all just, he embraces the fact that they're together. There's a unity between the scriptures, between the Old and New Testaments. Jesus stands there talking with Elijah and talking with Moses. He wasn't gonna abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to take what they started and make it to its perfection. But you see in that moment, he is still greater. Moses and Elijah don't show up in glory. They don't show reflecting or shining. They just come normal. Deferring to Jesus in their conversation to give us a very clear picture He alone is the one that could save us. The law couldn't save. What Moses brought could not save the people. It could show them their sin, but it couldn't save them. The prophets with all their teaching and all the great things they had to say could not save the people. So they show up there with Jesus. Jesus, the culmination of all that had happened before him. All the things that the law did, all the things that prophets did pointing to Jesus. And in that moment, the disciples are starting to understand, starting to get it, starting to see the connections of it all. Where Jesus fits in this place in history, why the Old Testament matters is because Jesus is the culmination of it all. And if that weren't enough, if that was all we got, that'd be good. But then we get our call out of this. The next miracle that happens is it says that a cloud, a bright cloud descends upon the mountain and a voice comes from it. And this idea of the bright cloud, if you've recognized that that imagery, you should, because that's the Shekinah glory of God. We see it when they dedicate the temple and the the cloud comes in of God's presence. When God leads the people out of Egypt, he leads them by a tower of fire by night and a tower of cloud by day. Same picture, same understanding that God has shown up. If it wasn't enough for you to see like Jesus in his glory, if it wasn't enough for you to see Moses and Elijah, let me give you one more picture. And God speaks. This is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. And why that? Why that important message? A, because it gives us this picture. He's the son of God. 
Make no bones about it, no mistakes, no matter what you think you wanna make him into, this is who he is. God says he's my son and I love him. But why say more than that? Let me tell you why. You and I all have people in our lives that we love that we don't approve of their life. That they're making decisions or they're making mistakes or they're doing things that we wish they wouldn't do but we still love them. If someone says, oh, do you love your brother or sister or cousin, aunt, uncle, friend, whatever that person is, you still love them, but you're probably not pleased with what they're doing. So for the disciples to go, I wonder if Jesus has gotten this all mixed up in his head. He's supposed to be the Messiah. The Messiah should be the king, should be leading us out of slavery. He shouldn't be dying. I don't know why he's talking like this. So for God to show up and say, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, who's doing what I've called him to do, who's doing what I've asked him to, what he needs to. His words are my words. This is my plan. This is my mission that I've put him on. Hear me when I say this, I'm pleased with him. So disciples couldn't go, well, of course he's his dad. He loves him yet. No, no, he loves him. He approves of him and what he's doing. And then the crux of it all, listen to him. So short, so sweet. Listen to him. How much would my life be better and easier if I just listened to Jesus more and obeyed? If I just listened to him, not listen to the voice of the world, not listen to the voice inside my own head, my own sinfulness and selfishness, but listened to Jesus as the one who made me, made the world, made everything and who knows how it fits together. He says, listen to him. Which the response to that was what some people might say is the third or fourth miracle, which is it makes Peter shut up. So like, listen to him. Listen. For you and I, the call is to listen to him because he's the son of God. Don't make him ordinary and common just because he took on flesh like us. He is so much greater than us condescended to be like us and love us, but he's God, make no mistake. He is God and he has the right and the ability to tell us how to live. Gotta listen to him. So at the end of this, backing back up to the son of man at this point in the game, now his place with us. So as this happens, as all this is going on, we find Peter with the most natural response, probably the response you and I would have. If you're there, Jesus in his glory, Moses and Elijah have showed up. I'm like, I wanna stay here forever. Like, I don't ever wanna go down. There are like people down there that bother me. There's ministry I don't wanna do. There's a lot of people I just don't wanna have to deal with. I wanna stay here forever. So he says to Jesus, it is good that we are here. Duh. So let me build three shelters. I'm gonna build one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And the idea is we're just gonna live here. This is our new home. Forget about the rest of it. This is where we are now. This is who we are now. And if we're honest, isn't that how you and I operate? When life is at its best, at its zenith, the best pinnacle of life, don't we say, I just wanna stay right here. I don't wanna do anything. I don't wanna go anywhere else. I don't wanna hear from anybody else. I don't wanna talk to anybody else. I'm just right here. We all want to just stay where it's easy and comfortable. And yet that's never where Jesus calls us to. He never calls us to ease and comfort. 
calls us to challenge, to take up our cross, to follow him. It is a hard road to follow Jesus. And then in that moment, as Peter can't help himself but just keep talking, the voice comes, shuts him up, and they all fall down on their faces afraid. We don't get or understand the picture. If you could for only a moment, use your imagination, you're at the top of this mountain and this voice thunders down that you know is God in his presence because you saw the cloud come, you are on your face undone. I know what Moses said about being in God's presence, about seeing his glory. I'm seeing the glory of Jesus. I'm hearing this voice. It's the end. They're down on their faces, not only in worship, but out of great fear. And what I love is Jesus's place with us. What does he do? It says he lays his hands on them and tells them not to be afraid. The God of the universe, the son of God, the most powerful one, re-gives back his glory as it were. He's now back to normal so that he may walk over and lay his hands. Reminded by scripture, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took the form of the servant. He goes, the same hands that healed the blind and healed the leper come and he lays them on the disciples. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't know what's going on in your life that's making you afraid today. Hear the voice of the Lord. Do not be afraid because he is with you. He puts his hand upon you and says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Whatever worries you today, do not worry. Whatever is difficult and hard, I am with you. His place in history, yes, but his place with us is personal, sweet, tender. He says to us, don't be afraid. I love you. I'm with you. That voice, I need to hear that voice every day and be reminded that we have a God who doesn't stand far off and thunder at us in anger and frustration, but one who comes close, who put on flesh that he might touch us. He might love us. He might speak tenderly to us because he knows. As we read in our, in our New Testament lesson, he's been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. He understands all the trappings and failings of the flesh. He knows how hard this world can be, and yet he lived it perfectly for you and for me. Do not be afraid. And then his call is to suffer and to die. See that in a couple places. The first place we're gonna see that is if you look in Luke's actual account of this, the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah is about his death. And the word they use is Exodus. Yes, the exact same second book of the Bible, Exodus, same idea. This idea that he is gonna take his people out of bondage and slavery that they may have to take out in faith to follow. So that's the idea of all of this, where they couldn't save, they couldn't really pull the people out of the bondage of slavery. Jesus could. In the second picture, we have to understand context of it all. We've heard these words from God at least once before. Do you remember where it was? Jesus' baptism comes up out of the water. It says, the voice of the Lord came down. This is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. 
And God at that moment shows up at that point in history to say this to Jesus as he goes into temptation for 40 days. At that point in time, the hardest part of Jesus' ministry in life. So here this voice comes again so that it may ring in Jesus's ears and ring in his mind as he takes and sets his face to the cross from this point on. That through all the hardships and through all the difficulties, he hears, I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm a son. He's pleased with me. As only a son of man could because he could go and die for us. That was the purpose. That's why he came. That's even why he came as a baby was to grow up and to live a perfect life for you and me and then to die. That's why he came. That's why we have this beautiful picture of him in his glory to remind us that there's something that waits beyond this world. And the only way to get there is through him. As I think about this, can you imagine being Peter in the midst of all this? Peter, who's seen so many amazing things, been a part of so many amazing things. And near the end, when Jesus is near death, and when Peter is the bold, strong one, I'll never forsake you, I'll never deny you, everyone else will fall away, but I'll be there. And Jesus says, you're gonna deny me three times. And what we hear at the end of all of this is that Peter's third denial, there's a moment where it says, and he saw Jesus seeing him, that Jesus looked at him. Can you imagine the hurt and the guilt and the shame for Peter in that moment to see the eyes of his savior who you've now just betrayed, just denied as you said you wouldn't and you run away knowing that he's about to die. How far has he come from this picture of Jesus in his glory? But there was still a hope. And we see this hope because when Jesus comes back and they catch the miraculous catch of fish and the people in the boat say, it's Jesus, what does Peter do? First one in the water. Not The boat's too slow. I will wait no longer. He jumps in to swim to be with Jesus because he remembers who he is. He was the son of man who died, but he's the son of God who can forgive even this sin. And as Jesus restores him back, I wonder how much of all of this played in Peter's mind. That he was one who God knew the depths of his soul and sin, and yet God poured out such great love and knew him and loved him. The hope for you and for I is this. One day, if you're in Christ, you are gonna see Jesus just like they did. You're gonna see him bright, shining, glorious. You're gonna see him resurrected. You're gonna see him made new as we'll all be made new. And you're gonna be with him forever. You're gonna be with him in a place where there's no more crying, where there's no more death, where there's no more sin, where there's no more pain, where there's no more shame. How can we but long for that? How can we be satisfied with the meager things of this world when what awaits us is perfection? In the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ, bright, shining, and open wide to receive you and to receive me 
to touch, to hold, to love, to whisper, I love you. So glad you're here because you're my child. And with you, I am well pleased. Let that be the hope of our hearts during the season, that that's what we long for because we know that's what awaits in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the reminder that is your children that you love us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what your son has done for us. Thank you for the gospel of his grace, that as we listen to him and as we obey him, that we know that we are loved by him. Let us live in light of the truth that this world is not the end of the story for us that believe in Christ and that we will have a hope that we will see you in your glory once again. We praise you and thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.